What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What London Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at London Community Foundation. Today, on a special edition of What London Can Be, we'll be revisiting two closely related talks from our vital conversation, Be Healthy event, on February 20th, 2020. The first talk we'll be listening to was given by Dr. Javid Sukera, the incoming Chair of Psychiatry at the Institute of Living and Chief of Psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. Dr. Sukera is a vocal advocate for children's mental health and eliminating biases in our healthcare system. And at the time of the recording, he was the Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics at Western University. Let's listen. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for coming out to this very important event. I am honored to be invited to speak, and I want to thank the organizers for inviting me. And I want to share with you a little bit about my story. So I truly believe that I have the best job in the world. When people ask me what I do, I tell them that I get to cultivate hope, particularly among young people uh, who are struggling and who feel like they want to give up. But why I actually chose to go to medical school was because I wanted to change the world. I saw the injustice, I saw the inequity around me, and I felt like connection was gonna be what, what transforms things. I thrived on connection. But in the first few years of medical school, I felt completely disconnected. I was stuck in a very dark place, memorizing as much as I could, reading as many books as I could, and I felt like learning these facts would not make me a good person, good uh, doctor. That I needed to see patients, I needed to work with people. So it was my third year of medical school where that magic happened, that I began to thrive. And I remember very distinctly that there was a patient of mine who uh, was diagnosed with cancer uh, in front of me and who deteriorated very quickly. So I spent a lot of time with her and her family and she was very close to the end. And my professor said, you know, you should really go visit her. She would welcome a chance to see you. But I also remember being paralyzed by fear. Fear that if I was to do that, that I would experience emotions that I wouldn't be able to regulate. So I talked to my friends and colleagues about this. And what they told me was, well, you just need to stop being so sensitive. You really need to grow a thicker skin. And those are the kinds of messages we receive, that we need to numb ourselves for self-protection, that we need to be less sensitive, that we need to protect ourselves by actually disconnecting ourselves from the things that make us human. But I took that advice, I worked hard, and I ended up here in London. And I ended up here on the front lines of a system that is extremely broken. And I realized that all my interests in global health and equity, that the biggest inequity was facing me every day when I saw the prejudicial and discriminatory way that my patients were treated in the system. 
Because as many of you know, in London, in Canada, we do not treat people who are struggling and suffering with mental health concerns and addiction the same way as we treat other people. And when people need help and compassion, they encounter a system where they experience blame and shame. So I witnessed this, and I tried to understand it better. And I looked at my colleagues, and I saw how they interacted with these patients. And I felt like I was watching a completely different person. These were all good people. They were people who I saw their humanity outside of work. But who I was watching was like a completely disconnected version of that human being. But what I witnessed made me realize that watching these people working in the system was actually like looking in a mirror at myself. Because in those early years, I was in a very dark place. I saw how broken the world is every day. And I was coping with that by doing what I was taught to do, which was disconnecting from who I really was. I spun my wheels as fast as I could. I burned my energy to try to fix things, to try to make things better. But what I was left with was an empty shell of a person. I wasn't the person that my family deserved. So there's consequences. There's consequences for this disconnection, for falling for what society tells us. And these consequences are for our own health and well-being. But they're even bigger than that. What happens when we're perpetually disconnected from ourselves and each other is that we see big problems around us, but then we fall into this trap of blame and shame. And we all do it. We try to fix everybody else. And we burn all our energy into these cycles of blame, shame, and disconnection. But my story didn't end there. Our story didn't end there. And that's because I want to ask you all, what are we so afraid of? Are we afraid that we're somehow not good enough, not smart enough, not worthy? What if we started to change the way we approach things? What if we took the revolutionary action of looking in the mirror at our flawed, imperfect human selves and actually had compassion for what we saw? Because self-compassion can actually be the key to all this. Not only can self-compassion help us be healthy, it can help us neutralize that fear, that inner critic, the cycles of self-blame that we fall into. But it can also help us address this disconnection that we see all around us because it's getting worse. We're getting more and more disconnected from one another. But self-compassion can help bring us to a place where we can actually lean in to those difficult conversations with each other. We can have courageous conversations and begin to co-create the kind of change that we want to see. Because being hum human 
isn't something we should be afraid of. It's something we should celebrate because it is this secret sauce that brings us together. So from my perspective, it really is a question of what it means to be healthy. And I would say that being healthy means being human. Thank you. The second talk featured in today's episode was given by Blair Henry, a harm reduction case manager at Regional HIV AIDS Connection here in London. His message of understanding and connection gets right to the heart of the issues many in our community who suffer from addictions face every day and builds off of Dr. Sukara's ideas of self-compassion. Hello, everybody. My name is Blair Henry, and I am a case manager with the Regional HIV and AIDS Connection here on King Street. And I work specifically in something called CarePoint. And CarePoint, which you've no doubt read about and heard about, is the what has been called a safe injection site, a supervised consumption facility, a, cons- a consumption and treatment facility, a temporary overdose prevention site. We've had a bunch of different names. Currently, we are a consumption and treatment facility. And this is the place where people are going to come and safely be able to use substances. It's a controversial bit of work. It's controversial until we start to understand actually the impact that it has in the community and the actual work that we do. And I just want to take a few minutes to just take you into a a typical client story, if I could, and just as an illustration of, of sort of the path that might lead to somebody actually utilizing our facility. I have one client and his story, and again, I have used a little bit of of narrative um, authorship in this to protect people's identity because we are an anonymous and confidential service and we really, really respect that. And we have this one young fellow, and I want you to imagine he was an immigrant, a child, uh, sorry, a child of immigrants, and he was at 12 years of age. He, as he described to me, watched his parents go through the front windshield of their car and, as he said, gurgle to death on the road. At that point, because he had no extended family, he was, asked, he was put into the foster system. Of the three homes that he was in over the next six years, they had, two of them had sexually abusive males in the, in the household. At age of 18, he broke a leg and the doctor prescribed him oxycontins to help with the, um, with the pain. At that point, he was able to deal with something in his head. I need you to understand that we all have seemingly unbearable thoughts in our mind that we need to manage, control, and avoid. And this individual had no way of dealing with those, those issues. And he, once he had his OxyContin, his, his, the opioid into his system, he said to me, I was able to close my eyes and not see my parents. I was able to close my eyes and not have an abuser chase me down the hall. I felt normal for the first time in my life. Well, his script ran out. And if you have that feeling of normality, if you have that, and that's all this person wants, was just to feel normal. And he had a taste of that. And so he went out on the street to buy a substance illegally because his script had run out. 
and on his first buy he was arrested and ended up into EMDC. This is the story of so many of the people who come into our site. And I'm gonna tell you, I get emotional about this. I have, I'm a leaky male and I'm proud of it because this is something, as we talk about connection and we talk about fear of being able to deal with our own emotions in these situations, it's a really important thing to recognize that people are suffering for reasons that we as society attach a narrative that is entirely fictional and, imagined, and, and imagined by ourselves. All of you have heard throughout your life that addiction and people who suffer from addiction are making bad moral choices. They're making all sorts of bad, bad decisions, bad people. And I want to tell you that I get to spend the majority of my day with incredibly talented, incredibly um, beautiful humans who are struggling through often no fault of their own. If you've ended up in the safe, in the consumption and treatment facility at CarePoint, it's very, very likely that you have an incredible history of trauma in your life and that you don't have the tools to deal with that trauma on its own. And one of the things that we're able to do is to help people start to develop some new tools. And as those tools get developed, ways to deal with that emotion, to deal and process that trauma, we see that the need to use starts to decline and we start to see people voluntarily, willingly stepping away from substance use. I personally do not know a single person from my high school who wrote in their high school yearbook that they wanted to live underneath a bridge and shoot drugs into their arms. That was not something any of us aspired to. And yet that ended up being my story pretty much. And that was something that I couldn't have imagined for myself. And this is something that we have to recognize that these stories are not the imaginative narrative that society and media, your parents, all the significant others in your life have told you about them. We need to break these stories down and recognize that each one of us are very, very much looking to soothe our troubling emotions. We all have stress, anxiety, all sorts of things. Some of you might be looking forward to going out and having, a, or getting home and having a glass of wine. Some of you might be going home and smoking a joint. Some of you might be going home and watching something on the internet or, or sitting down and just having Netflix and creating a big, huge divot in your, in your sofa from your butt sitting there every night. All of us have ways of soothing. And some of them are more socially acceptable than the ones our clients have found. But we're all doing it for the same reason. And very often the reason that you have to sit and watch Netflix is because you don't have someone to talk to. Somebody to help process stuff, to help you feel better. And the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And that's what brings us together. And as Javid has said, and as Robbie and Robin have, have talked about, by being able to create safe spaces for people, by being able to actually check our 
imagined storylines that we've created about people who are sleeping on the streets, about the people who are who are are populating, increasingly populating the streets of our city right now. Those stories that we're imagining are not based in reality. The true story is that we've got humans who are trying their best. And we don't do, any of us, something over and over and over unless it has a payoff. All of us will do any sort of things. It can look from the outside, it can look like a negative behavior, but there is a payoff in there. For my, the individual I was talking with, the payoff was I just wanted to feel normal. For me, I had anxiety, I had issues of trauma from my past, and every time I closed my eyes, it was just that feeling. And when I had substances in my system, it just allowed me to go, and that's what we want, is everybody just to be able to take a breath and relax and come into the present, come into the now without fear without fear of judgment and being able to ask for people for their help. And so when I see people like Javid going and working with frontline people in hospitals so that they can actually check their innate bias that we all bring, nobody's guilty in this situation. We're just victims of the stories and the reasoning, the faulty reasoning that people have told us. And once we find out and once people start to understand oh, I'm imagining that, that may not be true. What I'm feeling, the storyline that society has told us all along may not be accurate, then that opens the door for connection. That allows us to sit down in front of somebody and say, how you doing? And I'll tell you, if we do that, we're gonna be on our way to making a much more livable city. I will tell you, two years ago when we opened the site, in February of 2018. I could walk from King Street and or Clarence and, and Dundas down to Intercommunity Health Center and I would meet maybe 50 or 60 people who were living rough, people who were homeless and, and who had perhaps addictions, challenges. And I would know every one of these people by name and I knew their story. In the few short years, in two years now, I can tell you I could walk that same distance and I'll meet a hundred people and I might know five people by name. Our populations are increasing on the street. As social or economic disparity increases, we have less connection with people. We're getting bigger houses and fewer friends. We are becoming more and more isolated. And the solution to all of our society's problems isn't for us to get into our own bedrooms and living rooms and basements and cocoon, but rather to come together and talk like we are today. Thank you. Thank you to both Dr. Sukara and Blair for sharing your stories and experiences. The COVID-19 pandemic has been tough for many of us and devastating for many others less fortunate. We all deal with trauma differently and the global trauma we've just experienced will linger for a very long time. Have compassion for yourself as we emerge and recover and remember to have compassion for others as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be, 
Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash what London can be. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us.